This is Chanel Bunger with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, and today I'm excited to speak with Molly Gamble, the Vice President of Editorial at Becker's Healthcare, who keeps us updated regularly on healthcare trends she's keeping an eye on. Molly, thank you as always for joining me today. Why don't you take it away and tell us about some of the things that you're seeing out there? Sure. Thank you so much, Chanel. I have been covering and working closely with the team of reporters at Becker's to cover daily news and events affecting U.S. hospitals for more than a decade now. And every now and then, between the daily rush of news, I find myself taking a step back and I can't help but notice how so many of the daily events we report on really share some of the same systemic problems that are just so sorely overdue for attention and intervention. I don't know what the best term is for this, whether that's tyranny of the urgent, but there just seems to be this active dynamic for the industry and especially for the government and officials and lawmakers. We are also coming off of one of the most unproductive Congresses in modern history that seems to really fancy theatrics versus meaningful lawmaking. There also just seem to be some bigger opportunities ahead for coalition building in healthcare around some of these issues because we can't rely on the government to solve them all. But I lined up four or five issues, Chanel. I was just going to kind of talk to listeners about how they're cyclical in nature and how recent news that we've been reporting on at Becker's ties back to some bigger stories um, and some bigger root causes. The first is hospital closures. I think we've been reporting on this consistently, whether it's independent or standalone hospitals closing, especially in rural and urban areas. But we see this pattern, I think you and I have discussed it, Chanel, where local officials and lawmakers suddenly become very interested when hospitals announce closure plans. But then in the interim, like what happens between, whether it's ongoing attention about care quality, staffing, fiscal solvency, there just isn't as much reported on there. Um, So Stewart is the latest example of this, this Dallas-based system. It was on an absolute buying spree in recent years, Only four days into 2024, the largest landlord in the U.S., Medical Properties Trust, reported that Steward was $50 million behind on its rent. And it really wasn't until the Boston Globe did some excellent local reporting in Massachusetts that lawmakers really started to pay attention to this system. The Massachusetts governor is now calling Steward's financial situation an urgent priority. You've got states across the country that are now taking notice and starting to put in measures in response to a risk of abrupt hospital closures. Steward does operate in 11 states. So another instance where it isn't until things are pretty far gone and and pretty on the brink of abrupt closures like this that you all of a sudden start to see a lot of scrutiny, whereas it takes time to fall $50 million behind on your rent. There's probably some care quality concerns there as well. I know Massachusetts General pulled its physicians out of a steward hospital for a while due to patient safety concerns. So that's one cyclical thing we see quite a bit in our reporting. The other is hospital staff safety. So the SAVE Act, that's the Safety from Violence for Healthcare Employees Act, it was introduced in the Senate in September, in the House last April. And this is a bipartisan piece of legislation that would make it a federal crime to knowingly assault hospital workers. It's very similar to the federal protections that are in place for aircraft and airport workers. In the meantime, even though this legislation was introduced last year, As months go by, we continue to see more individual acts of violence in hospitals unfold, which we report on. We also are learning more. We're getting more longitudinal data showing just how much more violence healthcare workers are facing on the job. Healthcare workers are five times as likely to experience workplace violence as other workers. 
and that's from government data, uh, that's a big problem for many reasons. And one of those reasons is that that kind of environment and that kind of risk makes it all the more difficult to build a really strong workforce pipeline. The, the last two I'll touch on, speaking of workforce pipeline, we have so much room for improvement, even in our basic data about how we understand the healthcare workforce and where they are in distribution. So much attention is paid when it comes to workforce, to technology, AI, solutions, reducing the administrative burden. And it feels like reporting on this daily, it starts to feel like the foundation of our data about what we know about the U.S. healthcare workforce looks like Swiss cheese. There are so many holes in data about where workers are, what pockets of the country are facing the worst shortages, and how we get them and address them. There was some great reporting out of KFF Health News last month, finding that there's about 8,300 designated primary care shortage areas in the country. About 200 of them have been designated shortage areas for at least 40 years. There's a pocket of Chicago, where I am on the far south side of the city, that's been a designated shortage area since 1978. Uh, another in Baton Rouge in that metro area in Louisiana has been a shortage area since 1979. So this shortage program that identifies these areas, it, it started in 1965. It was not meant to label pockets of the country as shortage areas for decades at a time. So something this isn't working correctly. If, if you look deeper, even basic estimates about physician turnover annually are not available to us. We don't have a systematic or rigorous way of capturing that. So it, it, it does seem, though, if we don't have data on where provider deficits are most critical, it's pretty tough for federal policy to really do the most that it could to address the physician or provider shortage there. Finally, Chanel, just the last thing I'll mention is ransomware. At Becker's, I think we first reported on the first incident, at least to my knowledge, of a hospital cyber attack or ransomware attack in 2016. It was this small rural independent hospital in Kentucky, and it was in a state of emergency for five days in its ransomware attack. And since then, we've seen these cyber gangs and criminals grow more savvy, more emboldened, more nefarious in how they target hospitals. Giles Bruce on our team reported last month that health system ransomware attacks nearly doubled last year. Uh, 141 U.S. hospitals were affected. Data was stolen in 32 of the 46 events. And then also, it's important to keep in mind that these attacks can just wreak havoc to entire swaths of the healthcare infrastructure across state lines. Last year, when Ardent Health Services was hit by an attack, that's a 30 hospital system. It's based in Nashville, but across state lines in numerous states, ambulances were diverted, surgeries were suspended or, or delayed. It, it really causes a lot of complications for big parts of the country when these bigger systems are affected. Um, so unless governments, our government does something more meaningful and more significant than what we've seen them do to date, this will likely get worse. Uh, most recently, a couple of senators did introduce some legislation to beef up cybersecurity efforts within HHS, but that basically just requires the federal agency to perform some routine cybersecurity checks. It doesn't have teeth for hospitals. So there is a, a lot of rigor missing there. So those were the four issues. Um, I think in an election year, sometimes the things get downplayed in healthcare and the things that do get downplayed make sense. There are some pressing things that might be difficult to translate in meaningful ways to voters. But especially in an election year, I'd argue that each of those I touched on today, hospital closures and solvency, 
worker safety, provider access, and then cybersecurity are just so widely applicable. These are issues that are relevant to every health system. The impact assessment is strong for these issues. And I hope, Chanel, that even though we'll continue to report on the daily events related to those big issues, I do hope that we see in the years to come, or even in the election year, just a bit more attention on some of these really cyclical, fundamental issues that I think are overdue for, for intervention. Perfect. Well, Molly, thank you as always for joining me today on the Becker's Healthcare Podcast and for keeping us updated on all these important trends. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's so important for leaders at the top of organizations to keep learning, stay sharp, grow their networks, to help our audience better do this in a more simplified, personalized, and meaningful way, Becker's Healthcare has launched MyBHC. It's your trusted Becker's Healthcare experience and more with content, connections, events, and learning opportunities. Join the community free of charge at www.my.beckershospitalreview.com and we'll see you there. Mm-hmm.